Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Corwin Hiller. And uh, it is uh, July. It's been a minute. We've been busy, but the movies um, keep uh, coming. I don't know. These are old movies. They're not new. Um, yeah. So we are here today to talk about the uh 1981 film thief which ended up being a relatively prescient pick unfortunately uh and the 1957 film throne of blood uh corwin heller where would you like to start today um let's recently which because i zoned out when you were just talking i forget what it was oh uh Kurosawa movie, whose name I I have already forgotten. Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood. What? Okay, I downloaded it, and the file was uh, in Japanese, uh, so definitely has a second name. Uh, some sometimes the Japanese the films K. do be in Japanese. Uh, yeah, who would have thought? Yeah, I don't know what the other. Oh, uh, Kumano Kumano Sujo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which means the spider web castle. Uh, mm. All right. So throne of blood. It is. All right. No, it's uh, uh Kumano Suju. Eat my balls. Uh, okay. Throne of blood came out in 1957. It was directed by Akira Kurosawa screenplay by Hideo Uguni, Shinobu Hashimoto and Ryozo Kikushima. Uh, the film stars Toshiro Mifune, Minoru Chiaki and Isuzu Suzu Yamada. Uh, the film had an estimated budget of I don't see one. Uh, let me double check. 120 million yen, which I am not about. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm not about to do both the um, foreign exchange and inflation on that. So yeah, let's say that's not a lot of money because it probably isn't. Uh, I have a cumulative worldwide gross of forty six thousand eight hundred and eight dollars, which I've, again, I'm not about to run the inflation calculator on that. I just don't fucking care enough. So cool. Yeah, that it, let's say it did good. Um, the film, does it have a tagline? Uh, yes. Oh, f- the tagline is from the creator of Rashomon and Ikiru, which means nothing. The, the film was not nominated for any major awards, um, which is... Interesting because Akira Kurosawa is the reason that the Foreign Film Academy Award exists. However, they can't all be winners, I suppose. Uh, Although I am deathly curious about who was nominated in 1958. Uh, Anyway, the film itself is about a war-hardened general egged on by his ambitious wife works to fulfill a prophecy that he would become Lord of Spider's Web Castle. Now, this film is based entirely upon is a, a, a Japanese homage, essentially, to um, a film that we just talked about the other day, um, which is uh, not Hamlet. God damn it, Josh. What the fuck is it? Macbeth. There we go. No, it's it's not your fault. I literally just said that into the mic. I was like, oh, Hamlet. No, fuck Macbeth. Yeah, right, right, dude. I mean, fucking it's the same goddamn shit. And anyway, um. <laughs> like there, it's really not. But it. Might I even well said be. it in my head before I like said it aloud to make sure I got it right. And I said Hamlet. 
no, Macbeth. Say Macbeth. Okay. I was Hamlet. I was sitting Fuck. here like I know it's not Hamlet, but I'm getting closer to saying what the name of the, of the film actually was, and I know it's not Hamlet, but I can't think of what the fuck it, like, you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i know i'm rapidly approaching the word i can't think of but i'm i'm this train can't stop uh so yeah this is this is a macbeth film essentially uh, like top top to bottom t to b this is a macbeth movie um for reference the films that were nominated in 1958 in foreign film category foreign language was uh knights of Cabiria, which won which is a very very good uh federico fellini film the other nominees were mother india for India, The Devil Strikes at Night for Germany, Nine Lives for Norway, and The Gates of Paris for France. Anyway, um, so this was my movie. I will get us started. I, I have to say this is totally has nothing to do with the film itself, but it's a little unfortunate because we did like just see Macbeth kind of recently that when I realized it was a Macbeth, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Like it's a really it's a really, really good movie and it's done very, very well. And it's done in that Akira Kurosawa way where everything feels like this the the depth of scope is just gigantic. Mm-hmm. Like somehow everything feels so dramatic and and so yet grounded. Like like what a guy like Sergio Leone would then do with Westerns in um the 60s is what Akira Kurosawa was doing for samurai films in, in the 40s and 50s. And it is way is, better. Oh, it's so it's so good. And honestly, his interpretation of the story and what Joel Cohen, I think was the right Cohen brother that did that. Um did with his interpretation of Macbeth in the true Scottish fashion were honestly very, very similar. Like the, the use of dramatics and the use of imagery, granted, they are based on the exact same uh, material. So ob- obviously they would be very similar in the representation, but I, I felt a lot of the same feelings with uh, obviously the accessibility of the language being honestly easier in the Japanese version because it was the subtitles. But um, it's, I still found, you know, the, the, intrigue in the intrigue with the um the 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 mythical element to be just as intense here in 1957 in this version as i did in the um 2021 version of the film so even though i had a little bit of fatigue like Macbeth generated fatigue i did still very much so enjoy the movie uh corin why don't you tell me what you thought um it was very early on i think it was right i assume it was right when they met the the spirit in the forest i was like oh Macbeth, got it okay this has just gotten us so much easier to just kind of digest because you don't have to dissect every bit of dialogue that you're reading you can kind of focus on the imagery you know the storyline you know where it's headed you don't need to kind of piece a puzzle together in your head which i am notoriously bad at um and it just allowed me to kind of watch the visuals and and see the composition and and how he's putting these images together and oh my fucking god he is a goddamn wizard he is just one of the mount rushmore all-time greats when it comes to composing a film i mean i know that's not an outrageous thing to say and that's far more following along with the you know belief of pretty much everyone but kurosawa is such an artiste 
he's a muse. I mean, he it, he's incredible because that's the thing is one obviously the the massive shift in scenery helps a lot. Like if, if this was a 1957 version of Macbeth done in Scotland, I I'm not sure I I would have been able to finish it um, in one sitting without being just completely like fuck man i i just watched this so having it be in japan having it be samurai um also helps a ton but i mean making making shakespeare films well is so hard it is not easy it's not necessarily because of like i said the accessibility of the language or that anything is like overly contrived it's just we know them we know all of them, whether you know them directly or whether you know them um, from derivations that have come in other medium. Like, you know, you've seen an episode of TV that mocks Hamlet or rips Hamlet or you've seen an episode, a, a movie that that rips uh, Midsummer Night's like we all it's trickled down. The only thing the only time trickle down ever works <laughs> is with Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> and so to make a Shakespeare movie not suck balls is hard. I'm looking at um, what's his face his entire fucking career, though. I just made fun. Who's the guy that made? Um, oh, my God. I can't do anything right now. No, not Denzel. <laughs> the the white dude who just made the movie about Ireland, about the troubles that we talked about. That oh, uh, yeah. What's that um, fucking movie called? It's named after his hometown. Uh, I keep wanting to say Budapest, Belfast. Belfast. Thank you. God damn it. I had like ends stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, and who was the man that made uh, Kenneth Branagh? Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. His entire career is based on trying to make Shakespeare films not suck. And he did it like once. Um, so, I mean, just off of that alone, it, it's so interesting. Um, it's it's I, I, while watching it, I kept trying to think of what exactly specific to the plot we would be talking about. But there's really there's really not much. It really plot wise is directly Hamlet. Um I mean, is there any, were there any obvious deviations that, that you saw or, or, or turns, twists that they, that they made for the film? Um, I was trying to remember, does Lady Macbeth die in Macbeth? Oh, shit, does she? Because I even rewinded this to make sure I didn't miss her death. But I don't remember... I want to say no. I want to say she doesn't die, but I'll check. Does Lady Macbeth die? Quinn says yes. <laughs> I googled, does Lady Macbeth die? And Google answered the question, does Lady Macbeth really feel guilty? Um, and it doesn't answer. God damn it, Google, you're usually better than this. You've made life so easy for us, but I'm reading the summary and I'm in I'm in like act five, which I did not realize. That uh, yes. The queen, my lord, is dead. I should know that because it's like the line that they do in Barry. I once again thought that that was Hamlet. <laughs> Good. Oh, that's right. Lady Macbeth kills herself. Yeah. So that doesn't happen. That's as far right. As I, know. I knew that. That's right. Uh, no, but I also, I'm not sure if it happened. Did it happen in the film version of Macbeth? We just watched that too. Listen, dude, you're no, lucky bit. if I remember details from this movie. 
Yeah, I was about to say it's it's honestly not even worth it. Um, yeah. But I I I loved. I mean, again, Everything. the feel the feel of it is is so incredible. Again, I mean, one of the the true joys of watching a, an Akira Kurosawa film is it's one of the best representations I think of samurai that you're ever going to see because it it feels very real. And that was one of the things that Akira Kurosawa really emphasized in his filmmaking was tying back to the rich history of Japan and and not just making uh, pop art, which there's nothing against pop art, but uh, you know there is something to having everything be. I believe handcrafted for the film. Um, but I, I thought that they did such a great job with those mystical elements, you know, like the, the guy out in the cage in, in the, um, in the forest, there is once again, just like it in the film Macbeth that, that we had seen pr- prior, it, there is that feeling of, is this good or is this bad? I, I do not know how necessarily to interpret it. There is, a wickedness to it. And a, a part of that is a, a general mistrust of anything that seems mystical, but there's nothing malicious happening. And in fact, this character is bathed in light, which we don't new, but typically associate with evil. Um, and then the scene where uh, the general is general Miki is like, seeing visions but his wife just says like ah he's drunk just ignore him uh i thought also it was a really great job at showing madness you know which is something we, we get something of a sense of in the most recent Macbeth, and it's really unfair that i keep comparing it to it but we did it's like we just watched it um but really helps kind of put on display in a, in a much more contained environment really just with that one room setting kind of what was happening with General Miki as he was going through his descent into into madness. I, I thought that those elements were handled very, very effectively. I agree completely. Um, I honestly, I only was able to distinguish each of them from watching Macbeth so recently. Um, Helped a lot, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah sorry i'm uh i'm really torn just digging into the past filmography of akira kurosawa and i just kind of so want to watch all of them it's so good um i actually just watched an akira kurosawa movie yesterday <laughs> wildly unrelated to this podcast um i just rewatched rashomon it was so good um which honestly though is doing me a slight disservice because i keep trying to remember the things of throne of blood and i keep thinking it, whether or not it's from that or rashomon because i just watched it yesterday um yeah. Good. But anyway, the other thing I really liked about the movie that I don't think was an element from Macbeth, the play or the film that we had recently watched, was mm. the room where the previous leader had been killed and there was the uh the blood stains. Yeah, that was a really interesting addition to the story. I, I guess to to lean on the fact that there was there's always been violence in this feudalistic society, especially within leadership. Mm-hmm. And just right. the inability to run away from those past deeds. Almost like a predestination. Like, like the guilt that they have kind of following them and holding them down and just that weight that they carry with them for the, the course of the film. It's that physical representation that really, I guess, we don't see in, in, in 
other displays of Hamlet. Because that was, and that was one of the other things that Macbeth, I think the funk. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Because uh, that was one of the other things that I think this version added, which was the wife had a line where, like, um, the the general uh, Miki was saying, like, I, I don't want to kill him to get power or some shit like that. And the wife was like, how do you think Lord Suzuki got his power? He killed the guy that came before him. Was that one of the things Lady Macbeth used to try to convince Macbeth to commit the murder? I don't recall. I don't think so. I think it was more of a, this is yours. Why would you let anyone else take? Oh, God, I don't fucking remember, man. Right. We should have just watched both. That'd be a great double feature. Yeah. We should plan more of those. Yeah, that that'd be good. Uh, Our yeah, strong it, suit planning. In the uh, in the Wikipedia entry for Macbeth the play, it just says when Macbeth arrives at Inverness, Lady Macbeth just overrides all of her husband's objectives and challenges his manhood, um, persuading him to kill the king that very night. So it, it makes no mention of sure. the legacy, but I think that's one of the things that this film had done, and you know. Akira Kurosawa, from my understanding of him as a filmmaker and director, was constantly trying to find ways to help understand modern Japanese culture and um, society within the context of the longer view of Japanese history. And so to have there be that reference point of here's a room where one of our previous leaders was killed and our current leader got his power from killing his predecessor, having there be that kind of continuity i think also helps play into the idea that there is um that this is this is faded but not positively you know we associate these oftentimes a sense to power from prophecy or even just the word prophecy is being good but really it, it's 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 a it's like a cyclical nature it's a it's a it's a cyclical prophecy and that someone will always become the ruler because we have established society in that way. And that is not a good thing because no mm. one's doing it well and no one's getting there in a just way. Josh, you are, you are an actual uh, film reviewer and I appreciate that greatly. I, I appreciate you, buddy. I have to have someone to take this out on. <laughs> I imagine Kel is uh, not as open to uh, your rants. She's like, that's good. <laughs> She's like, that's nice. Oh, were you watching a movie? Oh, okay. Is it over? Um, yeah, there, there. I also, ooh, another thing I loved. I loved the way that they handled the idea of, um, like, I forgot what the line is from the play, but the idea of like the the bush, the the opposing army is coming, but it looks like uh like like bushes moving trees. Right. And in the film, we had, the the uh, Denzel film we had just watched, it, it is, you know, they're like lined up very tightly in a formation and they have some stuff on top of like their shields. They formed uh, oh, there's a Roman battle word for that, but I can't think of what it is. Phalanx. Thank you. Um, and in this one, it was done very differently to you know, obviously accommodate the methods of combat for feudalistic Japan. But I also I loved it so much because it's it 
as is in the intention of the play, it feeds into the feeling of madness, which is the trees are moving. Then no, it can't be moving. Like I, I'm experiencing the, the the same effects that I've been falling victim to for this entire thing, and then it ends up ultimately being the uh, you know the opposing. I, I love the way that that was and that was represented. It's done because until they show you quite literally how it's being pulled off, you look at it and you're like, man. Are those trees moving? Like they're waving? Are they coming closer? Are they bigger? Oh my God. Are they? Wait. A lot of second guessing. Yeah. And then that leading straight into the ending of the film, which is really, I think, again, a little bit of, of politics, because I don't believe the play ends like this either. Because doesn't Macbeth get killed by someone specifically? Doesn't get killed by like the sun? Of the guy, uh, I thought he's killed by Macduff. Oh, yeah, you're right. No, you're right. It is Macduff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Macduff uh, beheads him. That's right. Um, whereas in this film, he uh, uh, Mickey gets killed essentially by the people. There is there is a, uh, a a a note of like democracy behind the conclusion to to this regime. You know, where the one that everyone, we could only ever dream of. <laughs> oh, God. For once, the revolution was televised. Uh, and again, it, it, there is that, I believe, there to, to make a point relatively more specific to what Akira Kurosawa saw as being the times and the direction of, of Japan at, at, at that specific moment, but uh, is very readily also understood within the, the confines of the film, which is, you know, th- this one guy shit ain't really working out you know if if we all band together to kill him that gives us power as as the people of of this um region i guess because it was a little bit more balkanized uh which i found to be honestly a very effective ending too i love that scene of him like you know getting chased around by the arrows i'm gonna be honest for at least until he's uh visibly hit my first thought was, is this again all in his head? Are all these guys just standing in the courtyard watching this guy just chase himself back and forth across a balcony? Just like, are we serious about to fucking die for this goddamn lunatic? Uh, but no, they, he's he's not that crazy. That must have been one hell of an effect to do because, I mean, I'm sure that there's a little bit of trickery with the camera to uh, make you think things are a little bit closer together than, no because there were some dead on shots because that must have been fucking scary as shit as Miki getting probably what were real arrows fired at him uh, I would love if it's one of those things where it's like oh yeah we'll uh, we'll put those all in in post you know back when they didn't have a post yeah, there was uh, no and post. they were just scarily shooting arrows out of nowhere at him yeah. Um, oh, no, I found I found a, a piece of trivia that says the famous arrow scene near the end was, in fact, done with real arrows, not special effects. Honestly, good. Apparently. Oh, this is fascinating. So apparently the actor Toshiro Mufune, who, who plays Miki, would wave his arms uh, when he brushed away arrows sticking from planks. He would brush his arms in a specific direction to tell the um, archers where to shoot arrows next 
God, I just don't have enough confidence over my body mechanics to to trust myself to do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So apparently they were hollowed out and there were wires running to ensure that they hit their target, but they were real arrows being fired. So I guess they used the velocity of the arrow. Um, I don't know where the wires were coming. That's fast. Oh, whatever. That's not the point. Um, all right. Well, we have to move on to our second film. So to that effect, let's move into final rating review of this one. Uh, this was my movie. So I guess I will get us started. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I This is not where I would start anybody for Akira Kurosawa. If this was the only film he made, it'd be different. But his um, cinema is not cinematography. His filmography is so deep that there's so many better films in his repertoire. I, I, I think one could go over to. Um, and I, it's unfair to, to, to say that, that this film is weak by comparison, but when you're talking about one of the great filmmakers of all time, it, it happens. Uh, but I still thoroughly enjoy this. Uh, this is probably, I said I wouldn't probably return to Macbeth too frequently. I think I said I would watch that one probably a couple more times because I found it more accessible than other versions of Macbeth. But this is probably the version of this story I would return to the most. Because, again, having subtitles makes it even more accessible and having it be in, you know, this style, this this incredibly um, beautiful style in which Akira Kurosawa made his films and having it be in this different context that is so specific uh, to this one region helps to honestly brighten up the story a little bit. So I'm going to give this a, a four out of five for me. Big fan. We'll probably watch this again soon. Yeah, I'm right there with you. You know, not my favorite uh, Kurosawa at the same time, not my favorite Macbeth, uh, but even the worst Kurosawa is better than the best of most directors. So solid four. Right on, buddy. All right. Then in that case, let's take this over to 1981. So we're going to be talking about the film Thief, which of course is a little bit bittersweet since because since picking this film, uh, James Kahn has passed away and this film has been a um, his passing has led to a revitalization of people discussing one of a lot of his films. But this film has been one of the more discussed ones as well, uh, because it is a, a big highlight of his career. So it is very fitting that we're doing this, although, again, a little bit sad. It's unfortunate to lose one of the all-time great tough guy Jews of James Kahn. Shout out to the BX. Shout out to Jimmy. Um, but his legacy will live on for, throughout a very storied career. So Thief came out in 1981. It is directed by Michael Mann. It is written for the screen by Michael Mann. It is based on the novel um, by Frank Hawhimer, Hawhimer, no idea. Uh, it stars James Kahn, Tuesday Weld, and Willie Nelson. The film had an estimated budget of $5.5 million and a worldwide gross of $11.5 million. So doubling its budget is certainly a good thing. The tagline of this film is cheat him and he'll blow you away. All caps on those last three words there. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, the film is about, it has no major award nominations nor wins. The film is about an ace safe cracker who wants to do one last big heist for the mob before going straight. Corwin Heller, this was has that your ever pick. worked out for anyone. Yeah, the one last you should never say it's your last job because that means that you're either going to die or you'll experience the ending of this film. Uh, <laughs> so Corwin Heller, this was your pick. Tell me about the movie. So knowing this is uh, a film regarded as a peer to uh, Michael, Michael Mann's other hit, Heat. Um, I, is it really? Yeah. Oh. Huh. Okay. Um, all right. Maybe not uh, well known, but uh, now known. I think I went into this with too high of expectations. Because from a narrative perspective, I thought it was totally fine. Enjoyed it. You know, it made sense. It didn't do anything in my mind wildly stupid or crazy or truly unbelievable. Uh, from a character perspective, you know, James Conn killed it. Um, John, Jim Buscemi. Right? John... John, no, it's, that's uh, that's John, I believe. I think I, I'm, I'll double check, but I'm pretty sure that's John. Um, Regardless. Or, no, it's right, Jim. It is Jim. That's the okay. less successful one. I missed them up. Jim Belushi. John Belushi is the one who's good and dead. Jim Belushi is bad and alive. <laughs> I thought he was very enjoyable for his role. Um, Did not realize him, it was him until halfway through the movie. <laughs> just like him running around half naked for half the film was honestly kind of great. Um, just like his bathing suit, tackling people, doing whatever the fuck he was doing, whatever. I don't care. I thought it was great. Um, but I think where it went wrong was I was expecting a visual impact similar to Heat, which I thought was a, a really gorgeous film. And I just can't think back on anything uh, throughout this that kind of lived up to that expectation. And no matter how good the film actually ended up being, I was still a little disappointed by that. Um, again, as with most of my reviews, I feel like that's a me issue uh, that you shouldn't hold against it. But regardless, it's, uh, it's how I feel. Uh, no, I'm actually I'm, I'm going to fully agree with you. I found this to be kind of a tough watch um, for, I think, a lot of the same reasons, even without the expectation of, of heat behind this. It was weird to see because so you've got James Khan, who's known as you know a tough guy, a bad boy, big personality. So I'm expecting there to be a lot of like grit, a lot of a lot of fists. And th there definitely becomes some later on, but it starts off with him, you know, being a jewel thief. And I don't look up anything about movies I haven't seen before I watch them if I have the intention of watching them because then it's more fun. So it's like, oh, OK, this is going to be a safe cracker movie because it starts off with that scene. And then it's and then it's not. And you see him kind of like go through the motions of, um, you know, fencing the, the stolen stuff and he's running a successful car dealership and it's like okay so this is more of a character study piece and then it's like no it's not then it's a uh, one last um and then, then you know then the mob gets involved and then it's a it's a one last job kind of situation and and it's like okay so it is going to be a safe cracking movie and then it's like kind of you know like it, 
the film really feels like it's centered around look how fucking cool James Conn is. And to that effect, the movie's right. James Conn's fucking cool. Yeah. Like there's so many scenes where if he doesn't have like one foot on the chair he's sitting on, he might as well based on his attitude, like just talking cash shit, however he wants. And it's like, yeah, this guy's fucking amazing. But then there's so much of the movie where I'm like, but I don't care what's happening right now. Like I, it, it, it's, we're constantly shifting where the movie is going, but up until like the hour Mark, when they actually start getting ready to get into one of the safes, I'm like, I, I this the first 45 mm-hmm. minutes of this movie feels like build up. Yeah, like uh, heat starts out as a very slow burn, but gets very hot very quick. This doesn't really ever get terribly hot. Now, even the even the actual. Um, safe cracking bit with with the the like that only that scene lasts only what five eight minutes. Yeah, it's not a long like, scene. Uh, it's it's like a trailer length compared to what you would expect from like a, a you know Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, because or a, a Mission Impossible. Because that's one of the other things yeah, with. Better. With like those, you know, the 90s Mission Impossible films that, um, funny enough, I think has been brought up like three times, Corwin, since we've been talking in the last two weeks. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so not helpful because you haven't them. seen them yet. <laughs> I was going to so say. Um, but like the whole idea of that is like here is 30 minutes to set up tops. Like we're going to we're going to sh- start you off with a nice good action scene, as any good action film will do. And then we'll let you know, like, here's the people. Here's an assemble the squad type of scene. And uh, then we get going. And this film was like, okay, all right, we're taking a while. Oh, he's got a car dealership and a bar. That's nice. Oh, okay, yeah, here, here it goes. We're going to start with the, okay, oh, it's over. Okay, it's already over. Got it. Okay, that was quick. Cool, cool, cool. Not upset, but I'm not blown away. Yeah, it, it's tough because knowing that this is a book, I'm sure that there's a lot of the stress about associating with the mafia that goes into detailing all of these scenes. You know, the, the, there mm-hmm. there is additional stakes with all of these actions when you're being slightly, I guess, held hostage in a way that you have to do them, right? It's not just uh, succeed or go to jail. It's succeed or get killed or go to jail, right? Like you're, you're kind of, there, there's an extra layer that is more immediate to the main character that certainly adds some tension, but it, it's almost tough because James Conn's whole attitude is so fuck you that it doesn't make the mafia feel as big of a threat as it probably was. Like if he's, if you're too cool, that nothing seems to really get at you, then we lose the sense of what that stake is, you know? Right. If if you or whoever you're working with doesn't show the, oh, what's the term, the stakes 
if they don't show the fear, then you, the viewer, has no reason to fear the outcome. Right, right. If 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 I'm you know watching a story and something happens and no one reacts to it, probably not a big deal. Yeah. And that's not to say that James Conn did, a, you know, had a bad performance because he was too cool. The movie needed him to be cool. I think this is some a little bit of uh, a misstep in directing where it felt as though everyone else was like twirling a mustache while James Conn was in a whole different movie, you know? But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to line it up a little bit chron- chronologically to go through the plot a little bit um, since we have the time to not. We kind of just, you know, chit chat about it. All right. So, yeah, he uh, so James Conn scores some diamonds, right? Brings him over to his uh, his his fence, Joey Gags. Uh, however, Gags gets murdered by the mob for skimming money off the top, which did, did you get that right away? Because that confused nope. me a little bit. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, that um that didn't click right away. I thought it was an unrelated murder. I kind of did as well until uh at least just now. <laughs> at most later. <laughs> at most I still haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> uh once I remember who this Joey Gags fella is, I'll be right there with you. <laughs> I think he was in like a scene, maybe at like the beginning. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure if I saw the scene, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, now I piece it together, but yeah, no, fuck it, whatever. Like, this is how hilariously complicated the movie gets kind of at, in the beginning when you were expecting it to go in one direction. From the Wikipedia, this is like three sentences. This is the, the second paragraph of this plot description. After taking down a major diamond score, Frank gives the diamonds to his fence, Joe Gags. However, before Frank can collect a share, Gags is murdered for skimming from the mob's collection money. Barry, Frank's friend and associate making the pickup, discovers that a plating company executive Gags work for, Ataglia, is responsible for Gags' murder and stealing Frank's payoff in, con- in a confrontation with Ataglia, Ataglia's plating company. Frank demands his money back. So it, 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 there's like there's like four characters in there, three or four characters in there worth of uh, sh- shifting, you know, and once we enter into like that kind of like slightly corporate element with with Ataglia, it, it, it was it was so not what you're braced for it was kind of tough because mm-hmm. um, then Ataglia introduces him to his boss Leo who's a, a fence and Leo was receiving um, diamonds from gags so he, he kind of like already knows him and this meeting by the Chicago River gets um spotted or is being surveilled by the police which i also thought was kind of a strange scene because i believe that's the scene with um the the the, uh the crosshairs the 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 sniper right Mm -hmm. and i kept thinking yeah why not just pull the pull the trigger or get in there like you know like it's very weird to see a cop movie where it's like all right the two bad guys are together yep let's wait and see well, should we should we jump on him? Uh, nah, it's like oh, but uh, okay. I never got that in this movie. In any movie, like yeah, okay. There's 
evidence that you need to get together yeah it's like it's like um this reasonable suspicion with known criminals is not enough we must catch them in the act of committing crimes which really is quite the indictment on police which is we will not prevent (laughs) we will only partially interrupt it's like that's not helpful but that's police uh so then after that james Kong goes on and he talks about he, he tries to adopt a kid i completely forgot about that oh my god that's the best yeah. scene that that whole relationship dynamic uh, was painful for me um did not enjoy it whatsoever no is better or worse than the women characters in bridge on the river Kwai? um i still hold as a standard for bad better because at least these aren't like essentially slave women true like at least she had a choice and he seems to care that was literally just like yeah you're gonna come hang out with me because i'm gonna fuck you yeah that was the crazy thing is it was like why would i keep helping out with the war when i could just fuck these women with no consent because they're into it because i'm american Yeah. yeah um yeah, because it was just and there was some there was some interesting acting from James Cotton in those scenes where, you know, like he does a really good job with his character's depth there. The problem was, again, with much of the rest of the film, which is like I, I can appreciate what, what Khan is doing with this character. You know, he's not just a tough guy. He's a tough guy who also is searching for something, who, who is actively seeking out something greater and has learned something along the way about who he is. Um, however, the film isn't built for that. The film is built to be more straight up heist, more straight up. Um, the mafia is here. The mob is involved. Right. So to have those mm-hmm. scenes felt like such a detractor um, because there was no other, like if, if James Khan's life is already at stake, it's tough to have more stakes that add so much weight you know, mm-hmm. like because it's tough to be like, oh, well, he doesn't want to die because he's going to uh, not be able to adopt a kid. And it's like, yeah, but he also doesn't want to die. And that's a big reason to not die. Yeah, I, uh, I would put not dying pretty high up on the list of my priorities at any any given moment. Yeah. And I would put not wanting to die pretty high on my, li- my list of reasons to not want to die. <laughs> reason number one of not wanting to die. I don't want to. <laughs> Yeah. Like reason number Preferably. two, adopt a kid. <laughs> but reason number one is I really cannot emphasize this enough. I just don't want to. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, so th- then they go off and they, they steal the money. Um, and then Leo gives like uh, James Khan not a lot of money um, because he invested the rest in shopping centers. So I guess the idea there was um, I, Leo, am helping you, James Kahn, out by giving you uh, recurring passive income as well as the ability to exponentially increase your dollars. But I, James Kahn, am fucking pissed off because I was supposed to get 830 grand. And here you are giving me, you know, like not that $700,000 less than that, um, which also felt like kind of a kooky a kooky way to go about making th- this happen, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I will say the shock uh, from being fucked over by a guy who you should pretty much always expect to fuck you over in the exact way that he said he was going to fuck you over is uh, pretty special. But it was it was also so strange because it's so weird to see someone get upset over having money be invested on their behalf and what honestly would seem like a pretty financially responsible move. Like the 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 mob boss was like, I take care of my guys, so you'll always be set up. Here's a huge chunk of change for 1981. You're you didn't even want this job, so you're pretty good. Um, and here's a business in case you like run out of money or or, or you want to set yourself up for an early retirement. It just and and like I get James Khan's frustration a little bit. Like there's an Atlanta episode that's all about this, but it's also ridiculous because James Khan didn't want the job necessarily. He's getting paid a lot of money and he has an investment property. It's like, oh no, why do I feel bad? On one hand, like, yeah, I get not wanting your money to be tied up in uh, the mob for, you know, the foreseeable future of eternity. Uh, at the same time, like, if you don't want to be tied up with them, like, just don't do the job in the first place. There's literally nothing forcing you to do that first job. Right. Yeah. All right. So the film then goes on. Um, there's a couple of fight scenes with some henchmen. Um, James Kahn uh, has money. He, he gets um, apparently he does get the baby. Um, eventually I forgot, forgot that he eventually did get a baby. I don't remember that at all. Um, he, uh, he, the mob guy gets it for him. I didn't, I don't remember. I did not remember that. Um, yeah. So he gets his wife and the baby out of the house, breaks up with her essentially to be like, I'm about to do some bad shit. You got to get the fuck out of here. It's about to go down. Um, so he's like, you know, fuck you. We're done. Get out of here. She apparently takes the child. I forgot that she had um, $400,000 and tells her to scram. He then goes over to a Taglia's house or Leo's house, uh, beats up a Taglia, kills Leo, kills a Taglia, gets shot, um, but was wearing a bulletproof vest. So he's all cool. And then the movie ends. Um, I don't know why I thought her, him saying that to her was like you have to give back the baby no I took it as I, I finally found something that made me happy that wasn't crime <laughs> like I, I found a renewed purpose I found love and meaning in this thing that I'm not sure I'm going to get to have again and I'm not sure we'll persist beyond this evening if things don't go right. So I'm going to preserve it by chasing it away, like uh, like a like, like a like a a dog that your parents won't let you get out of here. Get go on now, you know that kind of thing. Good boy. I don't uh, want sure. you. Yeah, I took it as that kind of that kind of business. Uh, the ending I thoroughly enjoyed. The ending I thought was really, really well done. Um, of just, you know, bad guys don't look at explosions. Just going to walk away. Just a, a precursor to a Michael Bay movie. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Sure. Here's the thing is James Caan. He's such an interesting actor because he is uh, like 
when you picture him a little bit of like a generic tough guy, but when he gets into, but he is so compelling. Like he has a, a lot of, um, there's like an enthusiasm to him that I think your average uh, Jason Statham doesn't really have. I think Jason Statham is, is very in- engaging in certain projects, but like he doesn't bring anything to like the Transformer series, you know? It's not like mm-hmm. he's doing yeah. a lot. Whereas I think James Caan is always doing something that makes his character more than just, you know, it's, it's, it's a heightened character. It's not just, I'm angry. It's not just, I'm mean. Like there's something else happening there. So I, I enjoyed once his, like, it feels like his life is no longer on the line. It's much more, I think, enjoyable to watch him battle with the stakes of his wife and kid. Now that it's no longer, I'm trying to fight to live, but now it's like, I'm fighting for them to make sure that I'm preserving them uh dude you should just get yourself a girlfriend and leave that life look at me for a second (laughs) corn i'm engaged (laughs) what's the difference yeah so where does this fall for you in james con's legacy um man uh, it's i still think it's it's kind of up there i mean it's a good james con film uh, I think he's good in it for sure. Um, I don't think I know his repertoire enough to kind of rank it amongst the best. Like obviously the Godfathers are up there. Um, well, just the one because he died in the first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I realized that about halfway through um, <laughs> me saying that. Um, They're going to say halfway through the movie because it's like, yeah, that's when he dies. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 yeah. kind of the entirety of the thing. Um, I don't know. I, it's a good, not great film. I don't know how. Yeah, because I mean, Misery. He's so good in Misery. He I don't is. I've seen Misery. Oh, we gotta watch Misery at some point then, because he is so good in Misery. It's such a like an anti James Con performance. It's it's so good. Um, and then you know, yeah, The Godfather's fantastic. Uh, he worked forever, so he's been in a lot of random shit. Like, obviously, his appearance in Elf is, is very much I mean, so beloved. This is definitely behind Elf. Yeah, I will say that. Uh, he was in um the the uh fucking goddamn what's his fucking name? He was in Get Smart in two thousand eight with um Steve Carell. There we go, as the mm. president. Like he's been, it was super fun in that. Um, that was a lot of like. James Conn roles uh, in the, especially within the last 20 years in, in our lifetime, there were a lot of um, small, smaller parts. Um, but I also want to see rollerball. I've heard it's terrible in the best way. Your favorite so, kind of film. I, I love a good, love a good, bad movie. Um, yeah. A post-apocalyptic sports movie just sounds amazing. It's rating is approved. <laughs> Yes. Good. Uh, oh, final rating and review on this. Sorry. Uh, Corbin Heller, this was your film. You can start. Oh, um, I'll give it a three and a half. It was uh, an enjoyable film. It wasn't anything special. Um, yeah, that's all I got for it. Yeah, I'll give it a three. I am probably never going to watch this again. Um only because I, it doesn't scratch any itch for me that I can't get from somewhere else better. It, I'm not going to revisit this as an action film. I'm not going to revisit this as a James Conn film. I'm not going to revisit this as a Michael Mann film. There's really, 
there's for all the pieces that are here, it's it's not the best work of any of it, which makes it hard to be like, uh, yeah, I'll watch this more um, mm-hmm. because I won't. I just will not. Um, but it was like James Conn's good, you know, and I guess that's that's enough for for some of it. Uh, all right, then. Uh, we're a little short on time. We introduced a new segment to the show last time we spoke, which was just talking about movies we had seen outside of the films that we had to watch for this show um, in the interim between podcast episodes. But because we're short on time, we will save that for another time instead or just skip it for this week, really. Uh, and so, Corbin Heller, what do you want to watch next week? Uh, this is one that I've had open in a tab to watch for like four weeks that I just never have. Uh, Flight, starring Mr. Denzel Washington. Ah, all right. Easy. Watch. That movie's from 2012. Fuck you. Oh my god. I, dude, I was about to say it. that movie's from 2016. Oh my god. No, fuck you. Uh, wow. That. Okay. I hate that I just learned that. Oh my god, my world is being rocked. All right. Um, okay, so flight. I am going to pick. Uh, so I just watched um, the Black Phone the other day. Mm. Ethan Hawke's new movie. So I uh, was in an Ethan Hawke mood. I was talking to some friends about Ethan Hawke, and I want to watch uh, or would like to watch for this show a. Uh, time travel movie that he did that I think is a really, really okay. interesting and fun time travel film. Do not look up anything about it before you watch it. Sure. It is called Predestination. Oh. I've heard of it. It's very, very interesting. Um, I haven't watched it, I think, since it came out. Uh, so I am very much looking forward to all the things I forgot about it. Um, it features Sarah Snook, which obviously I didn't realize at the time, but now she has wow. become quite famous for um, Succession. So that'll be a fun uh, appearance to look out for. But yeah. All right. So uh, Flight from 2012 and Predestination from 2014. Check them out before next week's episode or don't. Uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to um, send emails to the show, you can do so at juicethebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye.